0: Are you ready?
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Around the CFL podcast. Anthony here with you again and we are at week 20 which means one week left in the CFL regular season. We have a lot to get to and we have a very special guest this week. But first let's check in on what's going on with the news. Edmonton Elks have turned their attention to 2024 after wrapping up their regular season this past weekend with a 45-25 loss to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Though the club finished with a disappointing 4-14 record for the second consecutive year, the emergence of Canadian quarterback Trey Ford has given the fans hope for the future. Despite his success, however, it doesn't appear as though head coach and general manager Chris Jones is willing to give him a long leash as the new face of the franchise. It looks as though Ford will be coming out as the starter for next season but of course as Chris Jones always says everything is up for competition. And in a move that will not shock anybody the Saskatchewan Roughriders are moving on from head coach Craig Dickinson. Saskatchewan announced on Monday that the team will not renew Dickinson's expiring contract. He joined the Rough Riders for a second stint as their special teams coordinator in 2016. He was then named to the head coach position in 2019. Saskatchewan posted two winning seasons in the 52-year-old's first two seat years as the jo- in the job, sorry, but wasn't able to replicate the success in recent years. The Riders missed the playoffs for the second straight campaign after going 6 and 12 in 2023. Dickinson called the team's 2023 season a failure on Sunday and shouldered the blame for the disappointing results. He went 34 and 34 in 4 seasons with the Riders. They didn't play the 2020 campaign due to COVID-19. Saskatchewan also announced on Monday that the team agreed to a new contract with O'Day, who's been the club's GM for 5 years and will now be looking for a new head coach. Dean Carry, the fake, the, the pass to Reggie Bagleton into the end zone touchdown. 21 points off BC turnovers, and Calgary again reestablishes a three touchdown lead. Week 20 kicked off on Friday with the Calgary Stampeders in a must win situation, traveling out to BC Place to take on the Lions. And they did just that, winning this one in a shocking way 41 to 16. For the Calgary Stampeders, Jake Mayer went 10 for 21, 123 yards and 2 touchdowns. Peyton Logan's return to the lineup was huge when he had 8 carries for 105 yards and a touchdown. We also saw Kadim Carey get 15 carries as well for 88 yards. Reggie Bagleton was the big target in the air, 4 catches for 66 yards and that big touchdown. On the Lions side, Vernon Adams Jr. started the game at 9 for 13 for 116 yards, but was pulled at the half for Dane Evans. Evans went 14 for 20, 125 yards, and a touchdown in the air. We also saw Jaquan Hardy carry the ball 11 times for 41 yards. In the air, we saw Justin McKinnis have a really big game. He had seven catches for 108 yards. We also saw Javon Katoy with five for 64 and a touchdown in the losing cause.
0: Deep look, right side, wide open. Touchdown, DeMonte Coxey. We talked about... How they do thrive in the big play themselves, and they can strike quickly.
1: Game 1 of the Saturday doubleheader saw the Toronto Argonauts traveling out to Saskatchewan to take on the Riders in another must-win situation for Saskatchewan. But unfortunately, it was not meant to be, as the Toronto Argonauts took this one in a very close battle, 29-26. to for Toronto, Chad Kelly went 18 for 25, 275 yards with a touchdown and an interception. They brought Cameron Dukes in as well in the game, went 10 for 15 for 113 yards. A.J. Olette had 11 carries for 50 yards, but it was Daniel Abdeboye who had a really strong day, 9 carries for 109 yards and a touchdown. And of course, DeMonte Coxie still continues to shine. 5 catches for 105 yards and the big touchdown that we just heard that went for over 50 yards as well. For Saskatchewan, Jake Dolagala went 30 for 45, 429 yards in the air, 2 touchdowns and 2 interceptions. Jamal Morrow was held to only 21 yards on the ground. And then we also saw Samuel Emelis had a really big game, seven catches for 137 yards and a touchdown. Sean Bain Jr. even had eight catches for 136 yards. Keon Schaefer-Baker had seven for 90 and a touchdown. But unfortunately, the Saskatchewan Roughriders did lose the game. And by losing this one, they ended their hopes for the season, which also helped Calgary to clinch the final playoff spot in the West. They're gonna move him to the right. Now he hesitation. Trouble ball pops up. Big has got it. Got oh, oh. a Big heel down to the dead five.
0: Touchdown, Biggie! As he takes it home for the bombers! A disastrous start for Ford in the Elks!
1: It was the season finale for the Edmonton Elks as they had traveled out to IG Field to take on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and it was those bombers taking this one quite easily 45-25. Trey Ford went 12 for 2, 288 yards. Kevin Brown was solid on the ground, five carries for 41 yards. Gino Lewis was huge in the air, seven catches, 158 yards. Manny Arsenault kept the Manny show going for another catch for 77 yards in the losing battle. For the Bombers, Zach Calero started the game. He went 13 for 16 125 yards and a touchdown drew brown came in a little bit later went a perfect seven for seven for 94 yards and two touchdowns brady Oliveira had 14 carries for 72 yards big play kenny lawler six catches for 98 yards the bombers finished off the elks for this one and it was a really tough season to watch for the elks but we're excited to see what happens in 2024 That is it for week 20 with the Owls and Ottawa and Hamilton all having the bye weeks. We'll be right back and we are going to sit down and have a great chat with Edmonton Elks rookie running back coach Jordan Lennon. We'll be right back. Today's guest has had a really interesting ride through the CFL coaching career so far and it's only just begun. From a playing career to a college coaching job to a CFL position, football has taken him all over the country. He is currently the running backs coach for the Edmonton Elks, Jordan Lennon. Welcome.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So you're from Lethbridge originally, aren't you?
0: I was born there. I wouldn't say I'm from there. I was born there. I I never got the chance to experience Lethbridge, but uh, yeah, that's my hometown. I, I thought it would be cool to kind of give them a little bit of a shout out moving back to Alberta and all.
1: So how long were you in Southern Alberta for?
0: Uh, I, I was about six months old, and then my mom decided to move. So my mom was born there, uh, raised there, but I, I was uh, more or less raised in Vancouver.
1: Oh, nice. How was growing up in Van?
0: Uh, it was great. I mean, obviously, uh, the city itself is pretty unique, and it's got a lot of things going on. So. I was fortunate, you know, I moved around a lot uh, throughout my childhood, but Vancouver always seemed to be home-based. So growing up there and having all the opportunities that Vancouver presents, whether it was summer sports and, and being out on the water or the winter sports and being up on the mountains, there was uh, always lots to do.
1: So you started your college career playing in Nova Scotia for the Acadia Axemen, correct? Correct, yeah. Yes. So how did you end up at uh, Acadia University?
0: Uh, going through my recruiting process uh, my senior year, I actually didn't really know much about uh, Acadia or even Atlantic Canada for that matter um, you know but throughout the process getting to know uh, coach uh, Cummings Jeff Cummings who's the head coach at Acadia even still to this day um, I just kind of felt like that was the right place for me so uh, you know I didn't take a visit much like some of the other places I went and uh, had opportunities to go to play uh, beyond high school but uh, I just felt like the relationship was strong with the coaching staff and more specifically with coach Cummings um, that it just felt like the right place for me so I chose to go there without a visit without really knowing much about the university. Um, I got there and I enjoyed my time there. Uh, I still have a great relationship with coach Cummings as well. Um, so that's how I ended up all the way out, you know, out East.
1: How long were you out there for?
0: I spent a year out there, um, with the intention of going back for my, for my sophomore year, but, uh, decided to come home, had some family stuff going on and, uh, took the opportunity to come home and played a year of junior. Well, what was supposed to be a year of junior, uh, parlayed that into three and a half years of junior. And then uh, uh, that's how I ended up back in Vancouver.
1: Okay. So yeah, you spent time with the Langley Rams. So how important is uh, junior football, I guess, when you're preparing yourself for college football?
0: Um, I think junior football is different for everyone, right? I think for me, junior football played a significant role more so in my, Uh, kind of reigniting my passion for football I think uh, at various points in my time at Acadia uh, I fell out of love with the sport not for any other reason than just you know me not knowing if I had a future in the sport um, both academically um, in my time at the collegiate level but also uh, like athletically I played two positions I went there as a receiver flipped over to DB so I was trying to find where I fit in and kind of at that level of football and also being you know exposed to some players that were a higher caliber players than the players I had been playing with prior. So, um, you know, coming back to junior, uh, it was more of like, hey, I got to prove myself to myself more than anything, but also to those around me and the people that, you know, believed in me. So playing junior, I just came back with the mindset, like, okay, if we're doing this for one year, like, let's go all in, let's try and be all conference, all Canadian. Let's make a statement. Let's, you know, put a highlight tape together, all those things. So um, for me, uh, you know, I came back and, and kind of found that passion for it again I uh, had some really good coaches at that time, was a part of some really good teams. Um, and it and it really kind of focused me on the fact that, like, hey, if you do this and do it at a high level, no matter where you're at, you're going to have an opportunity to get out of here and go to the pro level. Um, and, you know, being where I was to also provided the opportunity because it was allowing me to, you know, then parlay the opportunity with the BC Lions um, and then, you know, transition my time there.
1: And then you also spent some time going to University of Manitoba, correct?
0: Correct. Yeah. So kind of took the unconventional route you know after playing um you know three years of of junior um I had the opportunity to go to you know the University of Manitoba basically coming out of junior I had opportunities to play pretty much anywhere I wanted to coming out of you know uh junior um but I chose Manitoba just because of my relationship with coach Dobie Brian Doby recruited me you know year over year for even before I went to Acadia but more so when I got back to playing junior um you know every year I would commit um, at the end of the spring or heading into the summer and then I decided to play junior so it was like an ongoing thing but you know when my, my eligibility at the junior level expired um, I had a strong enough relation the players that I played with or played against at that time both from our program and some of the better programs in junior kind of all came together and we're like hey man like why don't we just go to one school and you know make the most of the opportunity at the collegiate level so you know I, I chose to go to Manitoba and I played there for two years and had a you know tremendous experience. And to this day, again, Coach Dobie is another person that I you know, respect and admire for, you know, for what he did for me and also what he's done for that program.
1: So football isn't always the most important thing. What did you take when you were in school?
0: So uh, originally when I went to Acadia, I majored in political science. Um, I had this uh, aspiration of being a lawyer when it was all said and done, when I was done playing football. But, you know, uh, most of the schools that I was talking to at the time coming out of high school offered criminology programs. Uh, unfortunately, Acadia didn't. So when deciding what I was going to take out of Acadia, I decided to take political science. Throughout my first year, I, I just didn't really enjoy it. It was, you know, pretty dry. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, enjoyment in, in the material and the content of what I was learning. So I knew whether I was going back to Acadia or if I transferred to another university, I wanted to make sure that I was in a program that I would enjoy. So, you know, after I kind of rerouted and, went through junior and decided to go and re-enroll in university. Uh, When I went to Manitoba, I switched my major to social work and I had a minor in psychology.
1: Oh, nice. Is there any plan on using that, you know, later on down
0: the road? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what steered me towards it. Uh, I've actually been, you know, using it in a more practical application uh, for the better part of like the last seven or eight years. Uh, In my off seasons, when I'm back home in Vancouver, uh, I work at a group home, um, work with at-risk youth. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, synergy there in terms of you know the practical application and the degree and that's kind of why I did it I, I think I knew that like i had already been working with youth um, especially uh, high level at risk youth so it was like the more I could take the you know the book application and have a practical application for it it was more important to me to do that so I did that.
1: That's amazing that's really great work that you do in the off season you also Play, you went on to a couple of practice rosters with the BC Lions and the Alouettes. A lot of people actually don't understand what goes into being on a practice roster and what that really entails for a player.
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, I was fortunate enough to have opportunities. I think, you know, being a guy from BC and, and you know, always aspiring to want to be, you know, hopefully playing for the BC Lions. Um that opportunity for me was, you know, tremendous being a hometown kid or, you know, being from the area, um, even just the opportunity to practice with those guys throughout my junior career and then transition into like a practice roster spot. Um, and then also playing, you know, um, I think the thing that uh, the thing that people don't really understand is, there. you know, practice roster for what it is on the surface level is, is great. It's an opportunity. You're in the building. There may be a chance to be elevated to an active roster or things like that but the other side of that is, you know, constant uncertainty, um, always having to prove yourself. And then, you know, the, the leeriness of like, okay, well I'm here today, but could I be gone tomorrow? Um, but that comes with it comes with the challenges that come with that. But, you know, for me, it was one of those things that I think really shaped, uh, you know, my, my mental and my, you know, my ability to, you know, compete at a high level, but also to like overcome adversity or just compete in general. So, um, I enjoyed my experiences both in Montreal and in, in uh, BC. And I think that both had their own, you know, highs and lows. But I think the biggest thing I took away from it was um, just the people I met and the ability to, you know, build relationships and learn the game from some players that now have gone on to have, you know, hall of fame and careers and transition. Some of them trying to transition into coaching um, at a high level. So things like that, you know, I, I, I would never trade that experience for anything in the world.
1: How did you know you wanted to become a coach after everything that you've, you know, experienced with, you know, college, junior, more college, CFL exposure, where did you decide that you wanted to be a coach?
0: (laughs) You probably won't believe me when I say this, but I, I actually honestly had zero at the time. I had zero desire to coach. Um, those that know me, especially from my playing career, especially the guys that I grew up playing with or playing against, I was always a very like intense person. Um, not just a raw, raw guy, but also very like, you know, in your face, I, you know talked a little bit of trash at times, but also was a guy that wanted to lead by example. Um, but in being that intense person, I didn't know that I could transition out of playing and be a coach on the other side and have the ability to articulate and you know communicate the way that coaches had done for me or coaches that I respected or you know seen do it at a high level. So for me, when I was done playing, Um, I was uncertain that I would ever, you know, really be involved on the coaching side of things. I knew I wanted to be around football because the game had given me so much, but to be able to like transition, especially at a young age um, into the coaching realm, and then to also be able to, you know, kind of flip personalities and be able to be that, you know, teacher mentor coach that, you know, I was starting to become. um, It was a, it was a, it was a learning curve for sure. But I think that um, I made the transition a lot smoother than I thought I would. Um, like I said, I think the biggest thing was how do you go from being that like intense in your face lead by example type person to then have to like explain and then you know the pitfalls being that you're not in control of the situation the players that you're coaching are. So that's kind of how I got into it. I actually ended up kind of, The the story runs, it basically was my junior program had asked me to come back for their spring camp, which is like a three day deal. Hey, do you mind coming out and just guest coaching? You know, no pressure if you can, not but we'd love to have you back as an alumni, yada, yada. And I was like, sure, no problem. I came back. I just got released in Montreal. Um, So I helped for three days. It went, I guess it went well enough that they were like, hey, do you mind coming to training camp just to help out, you know, on the days that work for you? And I was like, well, you know, training camp's only two or three weeks. Like, I can do that. Like, no problem. So I came out and we get near the end of training camp. And they're like, hey, you know, the guys really love you. You've done a great job. Do you mind sticking around for the season? Like, you know, it would be a paid position. Um, you know, you're an alumni. Da, 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 da. And I was like, you know what? What's one season? Like, let's let's just go for it and see how, you know, it plays out. Fast forward, you know, six years or seven years in of coaching and, you know, I've coached at the junior level, I've coached the collegiate level, and now I'm coaching at the pro level. So that's kind of the the fast track I was on. And like I said, if you had asked me in 2016, uh, if I would have thought of myself as a coach or coaching at the highest, highest level, you know, I, I would have told you no way. But I guess it worked out.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned that you went to play for Langley to kind of re-fall in love with football. So... When you were coaching there, and even to today, what's your passion level at now as a coach to what it was as a player, for example?
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the passion's still there. I think at the end of the day, football's given me so much um, in my life and my relationships with various people at various levels and various industries or sectors and. More importantly, like the network that I've built and, and also just the relationships with people outside of football, you know, like I've been able to see some people go on and do some great things in their own personal lives and and the things that they've done and those accomplishments mean a lot to me. So I think the thing that's kind of always, you know, kept the passion or the the purpose for me in football has always been the, the relationships that I've built with our players, with our staffs. You know, with the people you come in contact with in this game, you know, there's so many different touch points with different, you know, people from different walks of life. And, you know, a locker room is always the ultimate, you know, melting pot. But I think for me, the way I've kind of transitioned that, you know, that passion or the purpose is now, you know, just continuing to be, you know, a good mentor, a motivator, you know, a person that can, you know, empower whoever it is whether it's my position group or other players in our building to just be the best version of themselves both on and off the field and i think that's kind of where i found my kind of i guess niche in the game um but it's also just kind of you know kind of constantly looking at people from different walks of life and being like okay there's a reason you're here how do we get you to where you want to be and that's kind of what's always kept me motivated is like hey you know football's ultimate team game but there's a lot of you know individual stories and individual successes that can come uh within that story as well right so that's kind of what's kept me motivated and, you know, being involved in the game. And like I said, I know it's done for me and I've seen what it's done for a lot of other people. So I I want to continue to kind of pass that along.
1: You spent four years prior to where you are today with Simon Fraser university. Now, of course, you know, it's really disheartening and disappointing to see what's happening out with SFU. What are your thoughts on the current situation with the Simon Fraser university football program?
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, man, that's four years of my life that, you know, I could have never foreseen that coming. Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously in the building and, you know, dealing with that specific, you know, administration and and the different things and hurdles and challenges that we dealt with. uh, You still don't ever want to see that happen. I think at the end of the day, I'm of the mindset that, you know, more football and more opportunities and more, you know, universities that are available to kids to play at the better we are, you know, as far as a football community. So I I think that it's, you know, it's extremely disheartening that the leadership there at the university couldn't figure it out or that their, you know, immediate knee-jerk reaction was to end the program with no real, you know, precursor or real no communication, both at the administrative level, but also within the athletics programs and with the you know, staff that was in place. Um, I think the other side of it, too, is, you know, you put a lot of kids that are betting on themselves or betting on their futures and investing in being at the university uh, in a really tough position. And I, I think that was a part that was the hardest for me is watching some of these kids that weren't able to transfer out or it was too late to transfer for um, or even that were too far along in their degrees you know, struggling to, you know, now figure out what was next. So, um, you know, I'd love to see that program back. I know there's a lot of people advocating for it. I know they have a ton of community support, but ultimately it's the university's decision. They got to do the right things by not only the kids, but by the university as a whole, by that community, um, both on and off the field, and also by the people that, you know, have come before the players that are even there currently. Like that alumni is so deep and so, um, you know, respected at every level of football that you would like to see those people be, you know, at least in the loop of how to bring the program back, and then there would be some sort of plan of action doing that. But I mean, for the time being, everyone's kind of sitting idle and just hoping that it'll, that'll change. But it's like I said, it's just tough to see because a lot of those kids in that building and around that program didn't deserve that to be the fate.
1: No, and the it got cut right after you know all the spring camps happened. So even for a, most of the kids who wanted to enter the transfer portal, there was no spaces available for them. Maybe the very very select few.
0: Yeah. And I think that part, you know, on my own personal opinion, and I try to reserve my personal opinions in that situation, because, again, I'm very familiar with that administration and with that athletic director in specific. Um, I think that there was a lot of things that could have been done if the if the ultimate decision was to always end the program, you could have given all those university players uh, an opportunity to transfer whether it was transferring to a Canadian university, whether it was jumping in the transfer portal and looking for another NCAA institution, there was just so many ways that it could have been handled. And I think ultimately the way it was handled was probably the worst possible outcome, not for anybody other than the student athletes. I think there was so many things that were done along the way that, you know, was of disservice to those players and to those coaches. But I think ultimately to end the program, literally a day after they finished spring ball um, and literally at the point where, you know, in the summer where there is no more real recruitment like yeah you might have one or two kids that were able to jump in and, and, and find a home you know basically immediately but the vast majority of those guys didn't they either had to play junior football they may never have played football ever again or they had to transfer somewhere else knowing that yeah you're going to another institution but you're probably not a scholarship guy you're probably a late enrollee you're dealing with the stress of not probably getting into your faculty or your program so there was just so many layers to it that were really you know disappointing and discouraging but i, I think that that administration Hopefully one day owns that. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of people that have called to action just to kind of have those questions answered and they've never fully been answered. So, you know, what happens now? I think now moving forward, first, excuse me, first reinstate the program, but uh, more importantly, find the right leadership to be able to guide and lead that program moving into the future, whether they stay in the NCAA or come back to Canadian youth sport. And, you know, the, we
1: call them kids, but I mean, they are adults, but, you know, those kids and those athletes are, you know, the most important part of it. But what do you remember, I guess, fondly about your time at SFU?
0: Um, I think, you know, for me, uh, it was a tremendous opportunity. Like I said, my my coaching career wasn't one that I had been sitting there dreaming about, you know, from, from a young age. It was one of those things, I guess, I kind of, quote unquote, fell into. Um, but my time at SFU was a little bit more refined and focused because, um you know coach thomas ford who was the head coach at the time um sought me out you know i had a name in the community both at the grassroots level and both from my time as a player um he he sought me out we met we had a good conversation and um he made me feel kind of almost empowered to just take that you know leap of faith and see what it was to coach at that ncaa level and i and i did that and I think the things I remember most and have the fondest memories of were just the experiences of playing in those bigger stadiums, those more hostile environments. Um, Some of the kids that we recruited and brought into the, you know, into the university being guys that maybe weren't, you know, high on us initially, but doing a good job of recruiting them, doing a good job of, you know, showing them what the university had to offer and, and all of those things. I think those are the, You know, the memories that I'll remember the most, I think the other part of it, too, is just the relationships I built with, you know, our staff and the coaches that were there when I came in, but also the relationship with some of the players that came in and whether they stayed or they transferred. I think, you know, I still check on those guys, you know, quite regularly. And a lot of those guys are at that point now where they're either graduating or close to graduation. So, you know, now it's looking and just kind of from afar, you know, hoping and rooting for those guys to either graduate and move on to do great things or continue to pursue football at the highest level.
1: And after SFU, there was a big calling for you, I guess we'll call it. The Elks came calling. How, sure. how did this, I guess, evolve or develop?
0: Yeah, I was uh, I was honestly, I think, kind of at a, a point where I was unsure if I was going to continue to coach, uh, even just for the year. Like, I, I kind of was in a headspace just given all the things that were going on at SFU at the time prior to my exit. Um, and then also what I've, what have eventually would have unfolded after the fact, um, I was okay with kind of just taking, you know, a year away from coaching. Um, but you know, one day, you know, coach Jones reached out to me and was just saying, you know, Hey, do you have any interest in coaching? Um, you know, he said, it would be a little different than what you're used to. You know, I was a defensive guy, I played defense majority of my career. A coach defense whether it was you know coaching linebackers coaching dbs coaching corners um i had been a defensive guy for the majority of my career so when he you know extended the opportunity to say hey you know i'll probably move you over to the offensive side of the ball if it's a you know it's, it's something you're willing to do there's an opportunity here for you and um you know i talked to my friends and my family and some of the people i know around the league that i trust and respect and i i thought about it and i was like you know what like if i don't take this opportunity it'd be foolish of me to to say that i really pursued this with the expectation of trying to do it at the highest level. So, you know, I had the opportunity to get in the building. Uh, I knew I was walking into a different experience, both, you know, being a new staff that's coming together in a new city, but also for me personally, the challenges that came with, you know, switching over to offense and not having, you know, that gradual education or understanding of what we do as an offense, but just kind of diving in head first and having to you know, get up to speed on the nuance, the verbiage, the protections, the all those things that came with it. So that's kind of how it came about and you know fortunate or you know unfortunately I I was able to make the transition you know relatively smooth but it was a steep learning curve and at the end of the day like I wouldn't have been here without that phone call or without that uh, extent of an olive branch and opportunity that was provided from it. A coach's
1: job really starts way before training camp what were those first couple weeks or couple months like for you leading up to that?
0: Yeah it was like I said it was a steep learning curve Um, you know I think the one thing about you know, being at this level is there's a certain level of you, you assume that, you know, you know I mean? And it's both from the person that's in the, in the position, but also from the people that are around you, you know, there's a certain level of, Hey, like if this is the highest level in the country that you can do this at, what do you know and how much do you bring to the table? Um, I think for me, the coaching, you know, aspect and the part where it's delivering and reiterating information, that part was never hard, but the understanding and the, you know, like I said, the nuance and the verbiage was a different level for me. So for me, it was about how much can I learn on my own? How much can I get into these Zoom calls and, and, and learn from the other coaches? Um, also, you know, how do I speak the language the way they speak the language? Because every staff is different, but more importantly, offense and defense is different from the defense. You might have, you know, you might talk from the front to the back or, you know, from the secondary forward where in offense, it's completely different, right? Everything is tagged. You know, you kind of talk about formations, you talk about motions, then you talk about the play call, and then the backs. And so there's just so many ways of having to learn and, and break down those, you know, communications. So for me, it was how much of this can I learn? How do I kind of categorize things and kind of compartmentalize things? And then from there be a good teacher of that information because not only am I learning it, but I got to reteach it to guys that are coming in the building, you know, in a few weeks time. So that was a lot of my preparation. And then when I got here, you know, I was able to sit down with, you know, coach McAdoo and our other offensive coaches and just kind of learn how they teach. And then also learn, you know, the things I needed to learn because there was so much of the stuff that I didn't understand or know um, being a defensive guy. So it kind of had to kind of accelerate my learning curve, but it was a, uh, it was good when I got here because they, you know, they embraced me. They, they brought me up to speed and there was no dumb questions. There was no, you know, fear of messing up. It was, Hey, you know, if you, if you don't know, don't give them misinformation, come to us, let us teach it. And then you can learn and then reteach it at a different point.
1: So coming from the defensive side of the ball, now you're going to the pro level on the offensive side. There's also that big offensive playbook. As a running back coach, how much input do you have on the development of a playbook that size and that caliber?
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, like I said, because of the learning curve being so steep and because of me, uh, you know, essentially jumping to a whole new level, um, there wasn't a lot of, like, I guess, input from me. But there was a lot of, hey, we want your feedback on, can we do this with the personnel we have or the players that we have at your position? Who does this well? Who doesn't do that well? So for me, it was more giving them the insight on what my position group was capable of doing within the confines of our playbook. But as far as the playbook itself and kind of molding and developing that, that was our, you know, more experienced offensive coaches. I think this year I've had a little bit more of a luxury of sitting in on those meetings and being a little bit more, uh, you know. I guess vocal in my perspective on what I've seen on film and what I think and what our guys do well or bringing back up plays. I mean, we haven't ran for X amount of weeks or that we started with some training camp, but we haven't used. So I, I think there's been a little bit more trust both ways and a little bit more of a, you know, understanding And Hey, like you, you have some good ideas for me. I, I'll be open and honest. And I always say this, I'm still learning. I, I continue to try and learn, but I'm with a great group of guys, you know, coach how coach, you know, Jackson are great, great dudes. They're also, you know, brilliant football minds. So for me, it's more about being able to get with those guys and kind of pick their brain on how they look at the game and what they're looking at and how they break down film and why they think this works better than that or what brings them to this, you know, concept or idea. Um, but that's kind of the cool thing with our group is, you know, with with those two guys and then with Coach Soros, now our line coach. You know, there's a lot of, of you know free communication and open communication that there is no bad ideas sometimes your ideas get challenged but if you can you know prove or show that there's things on film that kind of make it make sense then then those ideas are usually warmly received
1: so i've been through a couple of training camps now so i want to know from your side how exciting is that first day of training camp when all the rookies fly in and start reporting
0: yeah i think there's always an energy in the building that's a little different i think you know you go you know usually about six months off where you're not really involved in anything football. So the first chance you get to get back out there, it's it's usually a lot of high energy, a lot of, you know, guys just, you know, having fun being around the group again, coaches are, you know, enjoying being around our players again. Um, and I think the energy in the city is always great, too, no matter where you are. I think every city that has a CFL team, you know, those those times leading up to training camp and, the you know, the whole training camp itself is the best time because it's, you know, it's usually the middle of summer. You know, people get a chance to come out and see practice. The energy is usually high, high and intense. So I think training camp that first day is always the best. It's like the first day of school. You know, you feel like all the stuff you put you know, in plan and place in the off season kind of comes to fruition and you get to apply it in a real life application. So I think training camp is the best part, uh, you know, usually for us coaches until you get to about week two or three where you're a little more sleep deprived. The energy level a little different.
1: So, you know, obviously it wasn't, you know, the start or the season that we had hoped for for the Elks, but there were some really big highlights. Let's talk about Kevin Brown in your backfield.
0: For sure. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. I know. I mean, Kevin's, Kevin's ability speaks for itself. You know, I think I get the luxury. I say this all the time. I get the luxury of coaching Kevin. Um, I think Kevin could be great wherever he decided to play football. Um, We're fortunate that he chose, you know, Edmonton to be the place he wanted to pursue football. But as far as, you know, how it it is to work with him, he's a a tremendous, you know, young man. He's a guy that gets it. Um, He's a guy that loves football. So, you know, for him, work isn't really work. He comes in here always smiling and joking. And sometimes, you know, he's like a little brother to me sometimes where he just kind of follows me around or is a pain in my butt. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to working and then, you know, putting on the hard hat and just going out there and doing what we need him to do, he never has an issue with that. I think he's, you know... He's taking the good with the bad. There's, you know, points in the year where, you know, he faced a lot of criticism for ball security, things like that. Um, and, and you know, we spent a lot of time just kind of, you know, harping the details. And my guys, you know, I told him the standard is the standard and you either adhere to standard and raise your level of play to that standard or sit at that standard or or we find someone that can. And, you know, it's not ever a threat for my guys. I always just tell them, like, I think every single dude in our room can can play at a high level, not just in this league, but just in general. I think like everyone has the ability to be a game breaker or a playmaker for us in their own right. Um, But when their number's called, I need them to do that. So a guy like Kevin, you know, he, he showed that from the day he stepped out. You know, I think last year, a lot of people in this league were kind of taken by storm because you know, his first game, he's, he runs off for 100 yards. And, and you know, he has a couple of plays that are explosive that, you know, show his burst and his ability and his athleticism. And now everyone's like, well, who's that kid? And, you know, as you move through the season, he's, he still shows some dynamic, you know, ability and playmaking ability. But now you come back into year two, teams have a little more time to prepare. Teams know what they're getting in in that young man. So, you know, for me, the challenge is always to keep him of the understanding that what you did last year isn't it doesn't have any weight on this year. So, you know, we looked at it game by game and, you know, there were some challenges issued to him and, you know, and not only the challenge of him being a playmaker, but it made a challenge, I mean, in his ability to protect his ability to hold on to the ball, his ability to be a good teammate, his ability to just really be a completely well-rounded back. And uh, I think to his credit, he showed that he could do that. And I think now, you know, we've been able to accomplish some things, but I think now the goals are bigger. I think the aspirations are bigger. And I think his understanding that the details matter even more now with a name and with teams that game plan for you is, is far more than it was even at the beginning of this year.
1: I feel like football is very much a what have you done for me lately type of a a game. You know what I mean? Like what you did last year. Great. Congratulations. But that was then. This is now. And for him, he finished second in the league in rushing behind Winnipeg's Brady Oliveira. Now, that is a huge accomplishment for him, but that is also a testament to you and your coaching of him.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Like I said, I, I don't want to take credit for the work. At the end of the day, he's the guy that's got to go out there and perform. Um, we can give him all the tools and resources. And I tell those guys all the time, I'm here to be a tool and a resource for you guys. You know what I mean? I don't I don't keep secrets. I'm not here to hope that one guy gets more attention or carries or opportunity than the other guy. I just give them the resources to hopefully go out there and be successful week in and week out. Um, I think the things with guys like Kevin is they bring a certain element that you can't, you know, you can't take credit for it's God given ability. It's whatever you want to call it. Um, the other side of that is, yeah, you know, we do have to prepare. We do have to watch film. We do have to know the game plan inside and out. We do have to be consistent. We do have to be better in protection or or consistent in protection. So those are the things where when it comes to his, you know, I guess evolution, uh, it, it was important for me to continue to harp that to him because I told him too is like I said before is I, I don't think the stuff last year, was really the indication of what you can do in this league. I think it was a sample size. I think it gave, you know, hope and, and optimism for who you are as a player. But now we have to see what that potential rule, really, like, truly is and how can we get there. Um, so, you know, for me, again, it was just harping the details with him. Uh, I also credit, you know, our offensive coordinator, like, Jarius did a phenomenal job of when he took over, just really leaning on the run game, really reestablishing the run game because we were, I call it dormant at the beginning of the year. But we were you know we weren't really heavily involved in the game plan, so when things shifted and we were able to run the ball a little bit more, and our o line kind of found their identity and really wanted to put an emphasis on being physical and and really letting the you know run game evolve, that's when things changed. I think I just was able i you know I was able to be a conduit of all those things and be able to kind of give him the the stuff he needed to know you know from the week to week basis or a day to day basis as far as the game plan. but at the end of the day, when the ball snapped, I don't step across that line, he does so I think it's full credit to him and what he did this year uh, as an individual.
1: I honestly think that there's also a big credit to you as well, just because, like you said, you were a defensive guy. You never really did the offensive side. You came in to the running back room, taking over that role, and look what you did—the second best running back in the league, especially for a guy who, you know, he did have, you know, ball control issues. Look, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. He's the one that's on the field, but you're saying that you're harping on the details. You're pushing the details. That really is a big testament to you, and. I appreciate- of course man and then you know of course 0 and 9 start but then everything did start to fire you went four and five over the back half of the year what kind of change to get that mindset to get those wins going
0: yeah I mean I think there was a bunch of things that kind of factored into that change Um, I think the most obvious or prevalent was uh, you know obviously us making the change um, my coordinator Um, but I think the other part too was the guys in the room, you know, what I mean, I think you can you can be the greatest coach in the world at any level, but if those guys in the room can't find it upon themselves to show up at work every day and you know put their nose to the grindstone or come together as a group, you don't have the results we had, you know. I think, and that was where, you know, at zero and nine or zero and eight, they had every reason to to quit, to to be selfish, to walk away, to to kind of you know pack it in, and for the guys in that locker room, all sixty plus none of them did that. You know, I think every day we showed up to work every day, the energy was high in practice, you know, the focus was there. So I think for us, what started to shift was, you know, you have to get that first one, you got to get that monkey off your back, you know, and for us, there was two, there was winning at home, which hadn't happened in our, you know, era uh, of being here. And then also winning at home, which hadn't happened in the entire time since, you know, the infamous name change and things like that. Um, so, you know, for us, we knew that that was a twofold goal. And when we got that first one, it was like, okay, now we can kind of breathe. And then from there, I think the players kind of, you know, ratcheted things up a little bit more, took a little bit more um, onus and responsibility. And now we can put these things together. So, you know, those things factored into it, you know, like I said, the change at, at coordinator, you know, factored into it. And I think the other part too is, you know, you get guys like Kevin going and you add a level of, you know, dynamicness or, you know, a- athleticism and you know, playmaking ability. And then you add a guy like Trey, you know, Trey Ford to the mix there becomes this dynamic that becomes a little bit different. You know what I mean? And it wasn't just obviously what was happening on the field, but you know, that part is obvious and evident, you know, coordinators around this league had to you know plan for two really dynamic athletes. But I think other than that too, it was the growing confidence in our offense as a whole, you know, the O-line believed in themselves, the running backs believed in the O-line, the quarterbacks believed in the protection they were going to get. The receivers knew that if the ball was thrown, they had a chance to make a play. So there became this like underlying confidence that was growing in, you know, to win a couple of games in a row was big. And then also, too, I think the understanding that even in the games we lost throughout the year, we weren't far. You know, I mean, the games weren't blowouts. regardless of the score. If you watch any of those games, it's, you know, at halftime, we're 10 points either way. We're up 10, we're down 10. You know, certain games were up way more than that. So it just became a thing of understanding, hey, we have to mature and we have to mature in a hurry. But the ingredients or the pieces, they're all in this room. You know, I mean, I don't think we, you know, unlike the year prior, you know, where we had to make significant roster changes, we didn't do that as much this year. We brought some guys in and, you know, obviously there's some injuries that happened, that's inevitable. But the the core group of guys were the same group of guys. And we just found ways to, you know, use their abilities to try and get us going in the right direction. And obviously we fell short of the goal of being a postseason team. But I think the the signs and the indications of, the character in the room, the ability in the room, and where we can go as as a complete team and organization, it it started to show itself towards the end.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not going to talk about that streak, but I feel like it's been talked talked about enough, and it's been kind of beaten to death, and I'm just kind of over it, as I'm sure you are too. For sure. But one part of it, though, is how do you mentally get that battle back mentality and keep the morale up in the locker room, when situations like that are happening in the media, things are getting brought up people. I mean, the internet is a voice for anybody, right? So how do you get, how do you keep the morale up and get that battle back mentality when the weight of the world is crashing down?
0: Yeah, I, I won't lie. And I won't, you know, I won't sugarcoat it and say it was easy because it wasn't, um, you know, I think especially as a coach or especially as a player, like you, you start to question yourself, you start to question the ability to overcome things that happen repeatedly right it's one thing to come and you know show up to work after a loss so but you know once you have to do that four or five times in a row or or nine times in a row it becomes a little bit repetitive and redundant but it also has you questioning everything from the processes of how you do things to your level of preparation to your ability as a coach to your ability as a player so for us I think the biggest things that kept us you know together both collectively and individually um, I know for myself even included like it was just showing up and knowing that at some point everything has a break point, you know what I mean? And, and for us, it's not breaking in a negative way because we're at the the most negative or what we saw or thought was the most negative point, uh, you know, in our season. So, for us, it's like, just keep pushing. And eventually, if it gives, or if the dam breaks and there's a flood, it's going to go in the right direction. And like I said, as a testament to that locker room because those guys showed up. I mean, it'd be easy if they folded and, and, and packed it in. We could have done the same thing as coaches, but at the end of the day, we're all paid to do a job. And, you know, again, when it came down to the energy level and the focus at practice and even just the having fun in practice, you know, you're 0-8 you're or you're 0-9. You're not supposed to be having fun at practice. You're not supposed to be cracking jokes and laughing and having music playing and you know, those type of things. But we were able to still do that while still keeping the main thing, the main thing. Yes, we want to win. But if you lose, it's not about winning the one you lost now, but winning the next one. And I think that's where when those kind of mentality started to, you know, seep throughout the entire group, that's where it was, okay. when it gives, we just got to flip the script and run with it. And that's what happened. You know, you get one, now you get two. All of a sudden, we're on a three-game win streak. And then it's like, okay, there's a little bit more confidence in the room. You know what I mean? And that's the thing where, Uh, you know, like I said, it was, it was some dark days, but at the end of the day, like this organization is climbing out of a bunch of dark days. So, you know, for us to be able to kind of get us back on track and, you know, be closer to the end of the tunnel than we were a year ago, that that's a win. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how we carried it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you see a lot of coaches like lose it for a lack of better term. Right. And mm-hmm. you talked about, you know, you were that intense guy when you were the player, but now you're the coach. How do you manage to keep your composure and still be that role model for those guys on the field and
0: off the field? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think it, it was definitely, a, uh, you know, there's some days where you like, you got to talk to yourself. Like, hey man, like, you know why you're here or, you know, what your intentions are, or, you know, what your in control of you know i mean we always tell our guys you know control you can control um and it's more than a saying you know i mean i think at the end of the day like there's a lot of things that people on the outside were like to the internet's platform for everybody um, that had opinions on things but had no concept or idea of what was genuinely and truly happening in the building whether that was vilifying players or vilifying coaches or or talking bad about the organization as a whole and it was like for us and i know for me it was like okay I can't control that. That's all periphery stuff. But I know that I can show up to work and I can give my guys the best experience and the best coaching, and the best resources to be successful in that given day or that given week. And that's all I got to do. And then for me to keep myself motivated was like, well, at the end of the day, I'm paid to do a job. You know what I mean? I say I love football. Well, I can't love football when we're winning and hate it when we're losing. You know, I can hate losing, but I can't hate what the process to get you to a win or get you to a championship or whatever. Takes. And that's kind of where I just looked at it as like, hey, you know what? As long as I'm in the building, I gotta show up for these guys, and then they're gonna show up for you. You know, what I mean, I don't think any guy that comes in here, or anybody that's a part of the organization, is looking at you going like, oh, well, I hope he doesn't call my number, or hope I don't get challenged, or or if we're losing, I'll screw the team. It's like those guys, those guys are culture killers, and I don't think we had that in our building, which made it easier to show up and punch the clock. I think the other part of it too is just you know understanding that to turn this thing around it's going to take some time and it wasn't going to be an overnight thing. Did we think it would take nine or 10 weeks? Definitely not. But I think we knew that there was a, a lot of work ahead. Um, so it wasn't a surprise that we had to go through some adversity. Um, how much adversity, different story. But at the end of the day, you know, I think there was a lot of character building in that. And I think outside of football too, um, you know, there's a lot of guys going through a lot of things uh, at every level, you know, coaches included and, you um, I think the best thing about football is when you're in a room full of guys that come from different walks of life, you kind of rally around each other. You know, you hear the word or the term family thrown around a lot. But when you're with these dudes for six months and it's an everyday thing, 10, 12 hours a day, you truly become family, good or bad. So, um, you know, that's how we kept, you know, our guys kind of, you know, locked in and just kind of encouraged them, man. Like if, if playing football and losing games is the worst thing happening in your life, your life's pretty okay. You know what I mean? Now, if you've got some other things that are going on outside of football, it's a completely different story, but we were being, you know, you know, we were taking the grain of salt with the losses and trying to find ways to motivate each other outside of football.
1: So, you know, you mentioned something that I really like there about how, you know, people go through all kinds of different stuff. And then, you know, when we started talking about the losing streak and stuff like that, you know, how the media vilifies players, how was, how, what, I guess it's, I don't really know how to ask this question, but, how important is keeping the players' mental health in check when they're going through all this stuff off the field, but then this other stuff is happening too on the field?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a loaded question. I think in yeah. this day and age, like, fortunately and unfortunately, like, social media and media in general, traditional media as well, but more so social media has created this, I always call it a vortex of, you know, accessibility, like, 10 years ago, if you wanted to reach out to me, you couldn't just pick up the phone and text me on some app or, you know, tag me in something. In this day and age, every person, every player, every administrator, everybody that's involved in the organization has some sort of touch point or access point. And the good part of that is you, you can, you know, curate your own fan base or you can build a brand or you can do all these great things. But the dark side or the ugly side of that is you give a voice to people that maybe wouldn't say something to your face or wouldn't say something publicly or wouldn't say something in certain contexts. Right. And that's where for our players, it's always, Hey man, like gain the, the, you know, the platform you want to create for yourself, but also safeguard yourself so you're not exposing yourself to real risk or real, you know, being targeted for things that, you know, are beyond your control. And so I think for us, when we talk to our players all the time is, you know, Control the, the the narrative the best you can, but don't let someone else's narrative define you. You know what I mean? Don't let a guy that's sitting on his couch say you're X, Y, and Z knowing he's never left his couch. You know what I mean? And that's kind of one of those things that we always try to keep our guys, you know, focused on, you know, do what you need to do for you and for your family. And if you do things the right way, there's no person in the world that can say anything about you because at the end of the day, you're doing what you think is best for you um and obviously too we always got to protect our organization like you know we always tell our guys you can't misrepresent their organization you have to represent the organization all the time and even when you don't think someone's watching someone's watching so that's the part where you know it's always a good and a bad or a gift and a curse but i think the mental health aspect especially as the season wore on became very relevant and very important because you know it's easy to be the the big guys the name guys the guys that are big free agents or big you know long tenured guys in this league but when you're a guy that's new here in a different city in a different country and you're not playing the way you want to or you're part of a losing you know team or you've never experienced losing coming from a different program well now there's like challenges and hurdles that come with that and so You know, it was always kind of making sure that we checked in with guys and not necessarily the main guys or the big name guys, but also guys that are kind of around, guys that on practice roster, guys that are maybe in a backup role or guys that were having a ton of success and are having a rough patch or a few weeks that they're not, you know, maybe playing to their potential. So those are the things that you kind of juggle as a coach. Those are things you juggle as an organization. But I think the biggest thing was understanding, like, mental health comes in various shapes and forms you know what i mean and for me to try and denounce what you're going through or you to denounce what i'm going through you know we can't do that it's just that's the way that this is and that's the way mental health is it doesn't have a name or a face it's it's various and different for everybody so you know you take it serious until you know you know it's not and or until you know that it can be resolved in a in a you know positive way but it's probably the most pre- prevalent thing In in sport and and in society, you know, mental health is a legitimate thing. And so the more we can do in our building to kind of make sure that players know that they have resources or, you know, rooms they can go talk to or professionals they can go talk to, you know, it's only going to help the player and our organization as a whole. So we've really focused on that.
1: That's that's amazing. That's a really great answer. So we're also hearing a lot, especially more in the NFL, uh, talking about, you know, running backs being undervalued. What are your thoughts on the current state of running backs in professional football?
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the bias in me goes, you can't undervalue the guys I coach, but I mean, the reality is this game has evolved, you know, and at every level, it's not just, you know, in the NFL or in the CFL, but even collegiately, like, you know, what backs are asked to do or how many touches or carries they get is different than what it was even five years ago. Um, I, I think the undervaluing of the position is a little bit, I don't want to say unfair, but it's unnecessary. I think the running back position will never go extinct. You know even I mean? I don't think they're going to take that out and line up in five receiver sets all the time. But I think the biggest thing with that is understanding that, yes, you know, I think the logic behind it from a personnel or an ownership standpoint is they're a dime a dozen, you know, they're high risk in terms of injury and things like that. But the reality is it's still an integral part of an offense you know you still got to block you got to have you know someone in protection you have to have a guy that can you know keep you ahead of the chains there's so many parts of what a running back can do or bring to an offense or to a game that are still valuable so to undervalue the position I understand it because of that mentality of hey there's so many out there and there's only one on the field or only three on a team or whatever the case may be but to say that you know there are they don't warrant being paid what another skill position is being paid. I think is unfair and hopefully that changes. I know there's a lot more advocacy for the position in the NFL, but I think also too in our league, especially, and what makes our you know our league so unique and awesome is the running back position is so versatile. You know, you could have any type of body type, any type of player, but they have to be able to catch, they have to be able to block, they have to be able to, you know, have a little bit of versatility. So and especially in a game where it's three downs and the field is wider and bigger, there's there's a lot more uniqueness to that position in the CFL game than there is in the NFL.
1: So let's talk about some stuff off the field. Your involvement with EA Sports and working on Madden?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, like another thing, like, again, you know, I say and I always say it all the time that like this game has given me a lot of opportunities and a lot of cool things to, you know, experience that I probably would have never experienced otherwise. And, you know, Madden and being able to do motion capture and to be able to be, you know, a creative director and do all those things that I've gotten to do within the game um, has been awesome. I mean, I, I was a kid that grew up playing PlayStation, grew up playing Madden. So for me, it was significant to be able to even get the opportunity to do it once. Uh, you know, you fast forward, I started it in 2016, and now we're here in 2023, and I'm still able to be a part of, you know, the shoots and be able to be in the game and to be able to be a part of uh, the cool events that come up with that. So, yeah, I've been fortunate. I've been able to do Madden since 2016 um, and do the motion capture for the game. I've also been working on college football. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a unique opportunity, and it's been something that I, I definitely – Never thought in my wildest dreams I would get to do, but being able to do it's now giving me that lifelong experience of like, hey, this is something that I can tell my kids or my grandkids about um, down the road.
1: How did it come about? Like, how did you get involved with EA and working on Madden and college football?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the, the craziest part is the timing of it all. Like, I got released in Montreal in 2015. I come home. I'm kind of like, all right, well, back to training and staying in shape for football. Just never know when you get a call all right coach that was coach Jones <laughs> but uh <laughs> but uh you know being able to do so many things within uh football like I started moving on from football uh playing I guess more or less I was like ah, I don't know if I'm gonna do anything with football I don't know if I'm gonna coach I don't know if I'm gonna even continue to try and pursue playing football and then you know someone reached out to me and they were like hey man like there's an email just take a check like take a look at this email and just check you know if it's something that could be interesting to you I'm like okay cool deleted the email, didn't read it, didn't even open it, just deleted the email. And I was like, all right, a couple of days goes by and uh, another one of my friends reached out and goes, hey man, check your email. I was like, for what? Like what like what's so important that if you're the second person to tell me to check my email. So I knew I opened up the email, I read the email and, and it was like, you know, opportunity to do some you know on-field movement stuff for a game it was unnamed they didn't want to like disclose what it was for but it was like you know you'd be doing athletic movements contact you'd be paid well blah 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 blah. i was like okay cool like kind of guess but i didn't i still hadn't put two and two together that was motion capture for madden um and then i'm reading the email and i was like okay well the upcoming shoot is in vancouver okay that's cool like a local i don't have to go far i thought maybe i'd have to go somewhere in the states or somewhere else where Um, and then I saw the dollar amount at the bottom of like what you would pay daily. And I was like, all right. So I fired off the email back in response, you know, and that's where, you know, the email went to a a guy named Mazio Royster, who's the, he's basically like the quality control creative director, um, for, for the, a shoots and, um, he's based out of LA and he responded to me. He's like, I actually were in Vancouver in a week's time if you're if you're available like i can't book you for the shoot it's a little too late for that because everything had been done prior but if you want to come basically work out for me prior to the shoot uh we'll potentially move on using you for future shoots so i went down to the studio ea has a burnaby campus it's actually the second biggest campus throughout the entire business throughout all of EA sports and all of the the developed mirrors and all of the you know um stuff that they do within video games as a whole um it's in vancouver it's in burnaby actually and so um, I go there, I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna work out for this guy for like 30 minutes, I'll go home. Did like 10 minutes movement, he's like, Hey, are you available to work this week? And I was like, Heck yeah, like let's do this. So, you know, that was my first experience. And then I had heard from various guys because at that time I was the only Canadian talent that was being used in the shoots. Um, they had moved more kind of primarily to ex-NFL, X Division one guys. Um, so it was all those type of guys that were up from the US. I was like lone Canadian guy. I was like, okay, well, cool. I got to do this, but it's probably like a one-off um, fast forward. I've been shooting ever since, but that opportunity came from me being, you know, right time, right place for sure. Obviously I don't respond to that email. It probably never comes to you know fruition, but also the other part being, you know, the timing of me being released, I get released in, I want to say June, and I'm home and I'm shooting in July. You know what I mean? And, and again, I had no idea that EA even shot or had a campus um, in Vancouver um, so you know, just all of those things kind of coming together, and the relationships I've built over time, I've been able to stay, you know, involved in the game, and I'm on my whatever sixth game or eighth, there's eighth game, I guess, now that uh, of the game. So it's cool. I mean, it's it's something again. I as a child it would have been like, no way, I could do this, but it's what football's given me for sure.
1: So the season is over now. What? What do you ha- what what happens now that the regular season over with a professional football team?
0: Yeah, I mean now you know for us, you know unfortunately we're done a little earlier than some of the other teams in the league. So for us, it's a lot of just kind of like you know exit meetings and meeting with our guys and just kind of you know going over the season in review and then also looking forward to the future and just kind of setting some you know goals and expectations for the offseason. Like hey, you know you need to do this, that, and the third, and let's let's focus on twenty twenty four. Um, I think kind of the good thing about our building was when we were eliminated or mathematically eliminated from playoffs, we had already begun to move towards 2024. Just the mentality, um, the way we approach practice, the way we were approaching the last few games. Um, so there was already that kind of understanding. Um, but now for us, you know, like the, the shift becomes, OK, now I kind of put my personnel hat on and, you know, work with, you know, Jiro and with Coach Jones and um, with Franz Clarkson and a couple other guys in our building. It's focusing on, you know, the U.S talent and then also more importantly the canadian uh talent that's you know at U sports schools as well in the ncaa and kind of starting to vet that, that process and then getting you know a more refined list on the guys heading into the combine period and then eventually the draft so that's kind of where we're at in our building and what we're trying to focus on and you know for me it's it's making sure i kind of step back for a second take a deep breath and then you know um for a lot of coaches, they'll go back to their hometowns. myself included. I'll go back to Vancouver and, you know, have some other little projects that I'll work on throughout the offseason. But, you know, I'm excited to get back to football. And I know, you know, May or June will be here before I know it. So it's just making sure that we, you know, prepare the right way. And if we have a little bit of an advantage because we ended a little earlier than everyone else, so we keep that advantage of the offseason.
1: Coach, thank you so much for taking some time to talk about your career, your story, and, you know, teaching other people about what goes into, you know, coaching various positions. I think you do an amazing job where you're at now. I have followed your career for a long time. You and I have been in contact since the SFU days. So sure. it was it was great to sit here and chat with you tonight. Thank you so much. And I like I said, you're, you're a great coach, and I can't wait to see what you do in the future.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on, and thank you for your time.
1: That was our conversation with Coach Jordan Lennon. It was great having him on and talking. And it's also really good sometimes to get inside the mind of a coach to see what really happens on and off the field. Well, it's week 21. We are almost there. It is the last week of the regular season. It kicks off on Friday with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers traveling out to McMahon Stadium to take on the Calgary Stampeders. This game really doesn't have anything that's going to be super spectacular. The Bombers have already clinched the division. Calgary's already clinched the playoff spot. It's cold and snowing in Calgary right now, so I'm still going to say it's going to be a really close game. I'm still going to say Winnipeg takes it because even the backups that Winnipeg has is just absolutely phenomenal. On Saturday the doubleheader kicks off with Hamilton traveling out to Montreal to take on the Alouettes and this is a tune-up game because these two teams will be facing each other in the Eastern Semi. Montreal I think has this one. And finally, on Saturday, the second game of the doubleheader, the Toronto Argonauts go out to Ottawa to take on the Red Blacks. Same kind of a situation as the first game. Toronto has a lot of really solid backups in their roster. Some questions maybe at the quarterback position, but still nonetheless, I'd say Toronto's going to be able to take this one over Ottawa, and Ottawa's season will be completely over, and back to the drawing board for next year. Well, that is it for us this week. You can follow us on Instagram, X, and Threads at Podcast, And you can listen to us on iHeart, Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to give us a five-star review. We will be back again next week with our one-year anniversary episode. No, I don't have anything special planned. It's just going to be another episode like every other one. But it's our one year nonetheless. That is it for us this week and we'll see you later.